You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. 2 Samuel chapter 21. After tonight, only three chapters left in 2 Samuel. Can you believe that? Seems like it's just gone by so fast. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> um, let's pray. Lord, just so good to be here. I know that's just the cry of my heart so often, but man, just coming, walking across the street here and seeing the barbecue tents up and just my new family here, just love these people here, love the faces and, and love that they're gathered together in your name to bless you and to worship you and to grow in you and to cry out to you and to be changed by you and And Lord, to just worship in this room and to just know that your spirit is just upon this place uh, is an incredible thing, Lord. And so we do pray that that your eyes would go to and fro throughout these chairs and and capture the hearts, Lord, and find those that are loyal to you and spur them on and encourage them on. And Lord, find those that, that need to be loyal to you and prompt their hearts, Lord. Bring just the gentle conviction of your spirit to be changed tonight. Lord, where the the fire of the Holy Spirit needs to be brought tonight, bring the fire. Lord, where leaps of faith need to be brought tonight, give us the enablements to make those leaps, Lord. Where sin is in our midst, in our camp, and just needs to be dealt with. Those members being cut off, Lord, cut off tonight. The sin that's just holding back what you want to do. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. You know my weakness. And Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be anyone up at this pulpit but you tonight, Lord, that you just speak your word in in spirit and in power tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 21, as you read through it, you kind of go, gosh, this doesn't really seem to fit here all that well in light of, of the last few chapters that we've been going through. And so uh, chapters 21 through 24 are not a chronological order of events of David's life, but rather they're an appendix of a few flashbacks of David's reign. And so just as you watch TV these days and those guys have those flashbacks where they're, you know, and they, sorry, that's, that's what's going on here. And as um, Nathan the prophet is writing this out, whoa, 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 yeah. He's like just about to finish it up. He's like, oh, I remember that one time that happened. Oh, and that time that happened. He just kind of closes up these last four chapters with some flashbacks. And so let's go ahead and just dig in. And uh, it says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered, and so uh, we have a, a famine happening here. And, and David so wisely cries out to the Lord. The, the nation is completely in hunger, completely famished, probably because of a lack of rain, but more importantly, because of sin that is within the nation, within the people of Israel. Now, David knew Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, if you want to flip over there, where the Lord says, now, before I dig into this, remember a theme that runs throughout Second Samuel is the same theme that runs throughout Deuteronomy. And that is what? Who can say it? Obedience 
brings blessing, but disobedience brings judgment. Okay, so obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings judgment. It's the same theme that runs through 2 Samuel as that runs through Deuteronomy. And so in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13 through 17, it says, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain And the Lord will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. And then jump down to verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. And so David knew Deuteronomy, and as year after year of this famine is happening, it dawns on him that perhaps he should inquire of the Lord, what is going on in this nation? Now, sometimes natural disasters and famines are the cause of, uh, are, are the result of sin. Not all the time, not every time, but sometimes. And here David, you know, they probably went through one month of famine, you know, two months of famine. And probably at first, you know, it's kind of like this economy, you know, the, when it first started out just being bad, you know, it, it wasn't really felt. But I'm just in, in amazed moving from Corvallis over here and just one of the highest uh, unemployment rates in the nation to see how it's affecting people. It's just amazing to me. And, and you know, a year ago, it was like, oh yeah, the economy's kind of struggling. And now it's like, the economy is really struggling and in another year, who knows, we could just be like, ah, oh, the economy is struggling and perhaps it's now that we should do what David did and get on our knees and inquire of the Lord, what is causing this? What is it? What's this economic famine that's happening? And so one year goes by with David, two years goes by, three years goes by and he's probably realizing this could be one of those natural disasters or famines that is caused by sin. And I'm, you know, he's in his quiet time reading Deuteronomy and he's like, holy moly, you know, I'm convicted here. And so he gets on his face. Oh, so wisely. You know, at first when I read this, I was like, come on, David, you know, why didn't you? Oh, you're so stupid. Oh, you know, getting on your knees three years later. But then I was like, man, how awesome that he finally did get on his knees and seek the Lord. He very wisely inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered. And what an example that is for us. If we would inquire of the Lord and seek the Lord with all our hearts, he'll answer. <clears throat> you guys know that I've just come through a season where I've cried out with tears for the Lord to show me and my wife and my son and my baby girl and my wife's tummy, you know, where we're supposed to go as a family. You know, last November, I met with Pastor Rob Verdine over at Calvary Corvallis and he told me, Rory, I just feel like you're supposed to go. You're supposed to go and there's a church out there for you. And I said, Rob, I'm feeling the exact same thing, but neither of us knew where or how or when. And two months later, after just 
wrestling and thinking it was one town. And two months later, February 1st, our church, uh, the Lord led us to do a one week fast. And, you know, some people fasted from just TV or some people fasted from one meal a day or some people fasted from just whatever Starbucks, you know, or whatnot. And, um, and the whole church fasted in one form or another. And there were three prayer meetings a day, six hours of prayer every day. And me getting to be, uh, being on staff, you know, I, I got to be a part of every one of those hours. And as I was on my face before the Lord, I knew the Lord was going to speak to me through the fast where I was supposed to go, where he wanted us to go. I was confident of that. And so I, you know, my buddy gave me a new um, journal for Christmas and it was really fancy, you know, and I was like, I can't wait to fill this up with where the Lord's showing me I'm going to go, you know. And, and as we're praying and seeking and fasting, you know, the one, week, one day goes by, please, Lord, show me where I'm supposed to go. I'm crying out, I'm crying out, you know, and I'm actually reading First Samuel and I'm reading the Psalms and and it's funny, as I was studying this today, I read through my journal. I'm like, holy cow, I was really desperate, you know? And um, day two goes by, please, God, please, I know you're going to show me. There's only five days left of the fast, but I know you're going to show me within these five days. Please, Lord. Day three, okay, Lord. Seriously. I'm starving. Why not just show me now? Let's get this whole thing over with. And it's it's crazy because I'm... I'm reading my journal on this third day and I'm desperate. And, and it's just like, Lord, I'm hungry for you and you alone. Show me. Your servant humbly awaits, you know. And, um, and I was really, I was reading my journal and it's like, I'm so depressed, Lord. I'm not hearing from you. What's going on? And there was really despair and depression in me as I'm seeking God and not hearing from him. And the cool thing was that I was reading Psalms, and if you flip to Psalm 34, uh, this is where the Lord had me in the Psalms that day. <clears throat> Psalm 34, verse 4. We're going to read verse 4, verse 10, and verse 17, and I wrote out each one of these verses in my journal. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And that was just a promise that I... I held on to. I sought the Lord. Lord, I'm seeking you just as David sought you and you heard me. And then verse 10, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Lord, I'm seeking you. I'm giving my entire being to you. I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Please, Lord, speak. And then verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Lord, I'm in trouble right now. My stomach is in trouble. (laughs) I'm crying out to you. Later on in the week, I got to Psalm 40, verse 1, and it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I wasn't waiting very patiently. And he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. And how encouraged I was from, from, and the, the tone of my journal changed from that day after reading the Psalms, knowing that when you incline your ear to the Lord and you seek the Lord, he hears you. He hears you. Be encouraged by that. You know, often with fastings, it's after the fast is already over. For me, it was after the fast was over, I hadn't heard anything and I just went the way that I thought the Lord was telling me to go, but I hadn't really heard anything. I even flew all the way out to Wyoming and, and spent a whole week there and really still didn't hear anything, but was just like, well, I haven't heard a no, so we're going to Wyoming. 
and didn't know a single person there in the whole state, you know, and so we were on our way to Wyoming and, you know, let's see, whatever, you know, May, get the call from Ryan to pray about coming out here and just hearing the Lord say, I heard you. I heard you when you humbled yourself and, and denied yourself and sought after me, I heard you. And so, man, I encourage you guys tonight. Are, are you not hearing from the Lord or are you just in desperate need to hear from him? Or is there just, are you in a famine spiritually? Are you going through a spiritual time of famine or even economically in your home? Cry out to the Lord. He'll sustain you. Spend some time fasting. See what he might do. See how he might even just encourage your heart or or open up your eyes to see what he wants you to see. And so David going through this famine time where he's watching the whole nation suffer, seeks after the Lord and the Lord answered him. And he said this, the, the famine is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So this famine that's been going on for three years of people who David knows and loves who are famished is because of King Saul and his bloodlust, because he killed the Gibeonites. Now flip over to Joshua chapter 9, where we see the story of the Gibeonites. Joshua chapter 9, it's over to the left, a few books. What, sixth book of the Bible? Chapter 9. I'm going to read it because, you know, there's some stories that you read, and I love action, love adventure. There's some Bible stories you read that, let's be honest, huh? And one ear out the other, you know, you probably don't remember. But then there's some stories that we men, you're just like, I own that. I own that section. Okay, so um, this, this would be one of those for me. It came to pass when all the kings who were on the side of the Jordan... Uh, in the hills and in the lowlands and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites heard about it. They heard about uh, Joshua and the Israelites walking across the huge overflowing Jordan River. And the minute the priests who were carrying the ark stepped in the water, the waters parted like the Red Sea. And all of Israel walked across as on dry land. And all of these kings on in the promised land who are going to get their rear ends whooped, uh, they hear about them coming into the land and how the, the Jordan River parted. And they're very afraid, okay? Um, they heard about it. And they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard about what uh, Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, we read about that last week, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to all the camp of Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, well, we're your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country. 
Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we've heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and Sihon and Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, we took hot from our provisions of our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it's all dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which we filled were now, uh, were new and see they're torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because it's been a very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they'd made a covenant with them that they heard that they were uh, their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Uh, Verse 18, but the children of Israel did not attack them because of the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. So, These people knew that here comes Israel and they are going to defeat us like they defeated Jericho and Ai. And I've got a plan. Let's pretend like we're just these humble servants and and we're no threat whatsoever. We've got nothing. We've got moldy bread and torn sandals, you know, and maybe they'll just make peace with us. And sure enough, Joshua and the boys made peace with uh, the, the people of Gibeon. But notice they didn't seek counsel of the Lord. You know, this seemed like a piece of cake judgment. No problem. We can do this without seeking the Lord. It's nothing. And they didn't seek the Lord and they made a promise. They gave their word that no matter what, they wouldn't attack and kill the Gibeonites. And when the rest of Israel heard about it, they were angry. What? Come on. We're attacking everybody. We're taking everybody out. Let's go get them. They're nothing, you know? And they're like, no, we've given our word. And what another lesson from these guys, you know, that, uh, what about giving our word, even when the pressure is on, or even when you are led to give it, you know, through a little bit of manipulation or whatnot, how they kept their word so that they could be a good witness to these people. Well, then in Joshua chapter 10, verse one, there's five other kings in the land that were all kind of part of this region. And, and they kind of called them, I believe it was the Ammonites. And so the Gibeonites were just one sect of the Ammonites. And the other five kings, they um, said, did you hear that Gibeon made a pact with Joshua and all of Israel? Ah, that really frosts my cookies. Let's go get them. And so they take off all five kings and they take off to go get the Gibeonites. And um, verse six, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the, the mountains have gathered together against us. So not only was there peace with the Gibeonites and a promise not to attack them, 
or harm them, but there was also an um, allyship, if you will, or, you know, alliance. Thank you, allyship. Sounds way better. Um, And they, so they went and Israel helped them fight against these kings. And it's an awesome chapter packed full of action and adventure. And you guys will have to read it on your own time. Well, then look in Joshua chapter 11, just verse 16, real quick. It says, thus Joshua took all this land. And so it says all the land. He ends up beating those five kings and taking all the land. And then in verse um, the end of verse 17, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. So the Gibeonites were the only people who received um, a peace treaty with Israel out of the conquering of the promised land. The Gibeonites were the only ones. And so um, apparently Saul, you know, hundreds of years later, had a complete disregard for this covenant. He didn't remember this covenant. He didn't care about this covenant. Um, and so he went on a killing spree, an ethnic cleansing, if you will, of the people of Gibeon, Gibeon, people who did not expect it at all, who had their backs turned to Saul, who were out playing in their yard the day that Saul decided to come and take over their country. And so if you read uh, there in verse, um, a chapter, I guess we're still in verse one of chapter 21, just at the end, it says it's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. King James Version says his bloody house, or the ESV says there's blood guilt on Saul and all his house. He's guilty of the blood of the um, Gibeonites. And so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them and uh, had a heart for reconciliation. Now, it's so interesting that Saul went ahead and conquered the Gibeonites and attacked them and did this ethnic cleansing because you remember back in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, I think it was somewhere around there, uh, Saul was told to go and attack the Amalekites and kill all of them, men, women, children, goats, donkeys, sheep. And yet he kind of killed some people, (laughs) you know, there was a battle, but he didn't kill everything. And, And you remember the story where Uh, The Lord told uh, Samuel that Saul disobeyed the commandment of the Lord and Samuel went to confront Saul on that and uh, and Saul kind of lies to Samuel and says, you know, oh, I did pretty much kill everybody and and all the sheep and everything. And and then Samuel goes, what is that bleeding of sheep I hear in the background? Oh, that's, um, (laughs) sheep, you know, (laughs) oh, that's nothing, you know, and that was the day that Samuel says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and the Lord desires obedience rather than sacrifice because those sheep were for a sacrifice for God. And he spared even the king of the Amalekites and he was disobedient. And that was the day that uh, Samuel said that the kingdom will be torn out of Saul's hand and given it to to one that is better. And you remember the story how uh, as Samuel's walking away, Saul grabs Samuel's robe and it rips 
And that's when he says, the Lord has just ripped the kingdom from your hands. You know, very fitting after you hear the rip. And, uh, but then here's what Saul says. Uh, he says, uh, if I can find it here. Saul says, I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. And so as you see, uh, it says in chapter 21 that Saul, in the end of verse 2, Saul had sought to kill the Gibeonites in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. And so he did it in zeal, uh, with zeal for this nation, not for the Lord, but in zeal to be popular. And he even wanted to be popular when the kingdom was being torn out. And he said, hey, don't just forgive me, but have a little goodbye party for me with the elders. And so the king then called, verse 2, and I kind of jumped ahead there, but the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Amorites was that word I was thinking of. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and for Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And so I love how uh, David, you know, wants to go and reconcile. He understands that the famine on the land is because of what Saul has done. And so he goes and he says, what can I do to, to heal this problem, this rift between us because of what Saul did? But make note, if you'll underline with your pen in verse three, how he calls Israel the inheritance of the Lord, the inheritance of the Lord. We tend to just read over that real quick and jump over. It's probably on the same page, but in chapter 20, verse 19, remember the little old lady uh, that chopped off Sheba's head and threw it over the wall last week? You remember the wise old lady that did that? Well, I remember when Joab was attacking the city of Abel, she cries out to him and says, I'm among the peaceable. She's like, stop tearing down the city. Don't destroy the city. I'm among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? So she's saying, I'm one of the faithful people in Israel, Joab. Why would you kill me? I'm part of Israel. I'm part of the inheritance of the Lord. And then over in chapter 21, verse 3, David says, why would you, uh, you know, what can we do to make this right so that the inheritance of the Lord isn't killed by famine? And I just love that Israel is the inheritance of the Lord. He values the inheritance of the Lord. He loves the inheritance of the Lord. And I love that Romans 9, 10, and 11 tell us that for a season, because Israel rejected the Messiah, there's a season now where the Gentiles can get saved and become part of this inheritance. We're grafted in to, to the... Um, to the olive tree that is Israel. We wild olive branches are grafted into the olive tree that is Israel. And so now we are part of the inheritance of the Lord. You are part of the inheritance of the Lord and the Lord values you. You ever feel like you're not valued? Sometimes a lot. <laughs> you guys are valued and don't let the enemy lie to you tonight as you go out these doors and go through times of struggle feeling invaluable. The Lord cherishes, cherishes you. He's invested in you. And if, if you flip to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, 
Ephesians 1.16. Let's hear some pages turning. <laughs> I want you to underline this. I want you to own it. It says, we'll just go mid-sentence, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Now, as I, I read that, and maybe as you read that, you might be thinking, yes, Lord, open my eyes to the glory that you give me or to the power that you give me or the inheritance that you give me. But that's not what it says. It says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The, the richness that's happening here, it's not just to us, like a lot of the book is about the richness that we're given in Christ, but the richness that's in the context here is that the Lord is oh so rich through the inheritance of his saints. Every one of you tonight, if you are in Christ, you are a gem in the inheritance of God. I don't know if any of you have ever gotten an inheritance before. I don't know if any of you have ever inherited money or land or, but it's a special thing. When my dad died, um, our ranch had been in debt and, and um, my grandparents who had gone into debt had my dad's power of attorney and had signed a lot of stuff in my dad's name and didn't really know about that. And when my dad died, most of my inheritance was taken. And so I, I got a little bit, which is awesome. And, but man, I've just learned that my inheritance is, is not perishable. Um, it's up in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and Steve's, Steve's, Steve's don't break in and steal because those Steve's, they're horrible. So Israel is valuable to the Lord. And we know from chapter 11 of Romans that one day all Israel will be saved. The church hasn't replaced Israel as the inheritance, but rather we've gotten to be a part of this inheritance and the Lord cherishes us and he puts security around us. And if you're not in Christ today, guess what? Today you can be, and you can be numbered and you can hear a gem fall into the treasury of the Lord tonight. If you just say, Lord, I want to be yours. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to take away my sin. I want to be made new. I want to be your child. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we could be called the children of God. And as you cry out, Lord, make me one of your children. I get rid of my sin and I give my life to you. Wash me. Make me new. Clothe me in white. Can't you just hear the gem fall into the treasury chest of the Lord as you become his inheritance tonight? And so I just love that David understands how valuable Israel is. And the little old crazy lady that chops people's heads off back in chapter 20, uh, she knows how valuable Israel was to the Lord too. In verse four, and the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. Well, isn't that nice? That is really nice of the Gibeonites. You know, David's like, you guys are awesome. Here's Saul just, it'd be like, you know, you know, Hitler killing all the Jews and, and now the Jews have a chance to get back at Hitler. 
you know, and them just saying, you know what? We're not going to take anything from Hitler or his relatives or anything like that. We're good to go. But the verse doesn't stop there. Uh, David goes on to say, he shouldn't have said this, but he says, whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. So it didn't just end with that nice little just forgiveness, but, but rather um, there was a deep cost to Saul's sin. That cost seven of his uh, relatives, two of them being his sons, uh, five, five more being his grandsons. And if you remember the study from last week, how our sin never just affects us. We think it does. And man, when you're in that moment of temptation, you're thinking, man, I'm just going to please myself right now. No one else matters. No one else is in the room or in the city or in the state. I'm just going to please myself. It never stops there. That sin always trickles down and has torrential effects through the rest of our families and our friends and our nation, even as we studied uh, David's sin with Bathsheba last week and how it affected uh, relatives just for, for generations to come through David's line. And so we, here we see Saul's blatant disregard for a promise that was made to the Gibeonites a blatant disregard. Was it really a big deal? I just broke a promise. So what, you know? But here we see, even after Saul is dead, that the sin is, is paid for through his sons, two of his sons, and three, three, five of his grandsons. Sorry, didn't go, take math classes in college. So, um, so seven of his descendants delivered to them. Now, this is not a new thing. It seems kind of weird, doesn't it? it? seems kind of like a weird, morbid type part of the chapter, you know. Ooh, really? You're going to like make these guys pay for Saul's sin? But this isn't a new thing. In Numbers 25, verses 1 through 5, it says that um, while Israel... Well, first of all, the hanging type thing is they were going to hang these men on trees is not a new thing. It says while Israel lived in... Um, I just saw that word and I'm not going to say it because it sounds like another word that I shouldn't say from the pulpit. It is biblical though. Numbers 25 verse one. If you're there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, while Israel lived in this certain place, now you're all flipping there. Oh, I will. (laughs) Got to use that little trick more often. While Israel lived in this one place, the people began to another word with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked itself or himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And you know the story where Balak tries to get the prophet Balaam 
to prophesy and to curse Israel as they're entering into the land. And you can see him as far as the eye can see from a hilltop. You can see Israel coming in. And Balak says, Balaam, curse them. Curse them all and make them die before they come into my land. And the Lord wouldn't let Balaam curse uh, the nation of Israel as they were coming in. Five different times he tried to curse them, but the Lord wouldn't let him until finally, because he wanted this bribe money that Balak was going to give him, Finally, he says, I can't curse them. The Lord won't let me, but here's what I can tell you to do. Have the children of Israel camp by the Moabites. Moabites, right? Pastor Ryan? Okay, good. (laughs) All those crazy names are hard for me to remember. Uh, Have them camp there and have them commit sexual immorality with the women of Moab. And as they do that, they're going to start worshiping the idols that the women of Moab worship. And that's how you can destroy Israel. And so that's what happened. And and the men started committing idolatry and sexual immorality with the people of Moab. And so they were, the anger of the Lord was kindled. And the Lord said to Moses, take take the chiefs of the people and hang them out in the sun. And so this is a, a, a thing that happened, that they would be hung for their sin. But then it's neat to see that while... David would have given them as much money, the Gibeonites, as much money as they wanted for Saul's sin, gold, silver, you name it, I'll give it to you. Um, the Gibeonites wouldn't accept that payoff because in Numbers 35, so just flip over 10 chapters. I don't know if there's any kind of baddish words there, but just flip there anyways. Um, if anyone, verse 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood. For blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So the Gibeonites were being obedient to Scripture by not accepting a payoff. They knew there had to be some sort of an execution. And so, verse 7 uh, David had just said, Okay, I'll give you these seven men, seven sons of Saul. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so you remember that uh, David was wondering if there was anybody left of the house of Saul that he could show kindness to. And he found out that Mephibosheth was uh, his best friend, Jonathan's son, who's been lame in his feet uh, since his youth. And so David took him in and let him eat at his table and really treated Mephibosheth like a prince. Um, And so there was a deep love there for Mephibosheth as it was his best friend's son. And so David spared that child or that relative of Saul. And verse 8, so the king took Armani and Mephibosheth. It's a different Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth um, and Armani... Uh, Armani, the suit maker. No, just kidding. I don't know. Giorgio, I think was his first name. Never mind. Um, uh, Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul. So uh, Rizpah was one of Saul's concubines, uh, one that um, 
Abner went into and him and uh, Ashibosheth got in a fight about. So Rizpah was one of Saul's concubines and she had two sons from Saul, um, Armani and Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth is Mephibosheth's uncle. If you can remember that Mephibosheth is Mephibosheth's uncle and his namesake. And then there was also um, the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzilli, uh, the Meholahite. So don't you just love those fun Old Testament names? So five sons of Michael here. Um, 2 Samuel 6.23 tells us that Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children uh, to the day of her death. So she was barren, and yet here we see that she's got five sons. Now, two thoughts here. Uh, Michael brought up these five boys for her sister Merib's husband, Adriel. Okay, So Merib was a daughter of Saul. In fact, Merib was promised to David, but in Saul's tricky fashion, he gave this girl away before David could marry her. So then he ends up getting Michael, Saul's other daughter, for 200 foreskins. Okay, it's a pretty good price for a gal, don't you think? But, um... Okay. Um, so five sons. So this is probably what happened. Five sons were born to Moreb. Okay. But then Moreb probably died and Michael ended up taking these boys under her wing and raising them because it says that, um, she brought them up for Adriel, the son of this guy. Um, or Michael should be changed to Moreb and it's a mistype or something, but I think it's pretty obvious. She brought up these boys, um, for her sister. Okay, so these seven boys, two of them Saul's sons, five of them Saul's grandsons are paying a debt uh, for the whole nation because of Saul's sin, a reminder that our sin never just affects us. And so um, verse nine, he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. So um, these guys are, are hung on the hill. It could also be translated there, impaled um, on the hill there. And man, what a picture of Jesus we have here. These seven people who are hanged, um, they're hanging to pay the, pay the price for another man's sin. And they're hanging to subside a curse that has been brought on a whole nation. And man, don't we know of another who hung, who was impaled on a tree, not because of his own sin, but because of other people's sin. And how we just have a neat picture of Jesus in these seven guys who lift the curse off of their brothers. And, and Deuteronomy 21, uh, verses 22 through 23 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your, your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here's these guys that are hanged. Uh, there's a curse happening here. But then also we have in Galatians chapter six, verse uh or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 13. And man, if you could flip there and underline this one reference uh, in the New Testament where we're at. 
um, it'll bless you because it says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. These seven sons of Saul, they went and they, they died. They were impaled. They were hung to take the curse that had been upon the whole nation for three years. And yet Jesus went and willingly laid his life down. He was hung on a tree for our sins. He was cursed for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he became a curse for us, redeeming us from the curse of the law. We couldn't keep the law. We weren't perfect enough. And he redeemed us from the curse of of not being able to obey the law. And so they hung there for, for quite a while as the first days of the barley harvest is when they were hung there. And then in verse 10, we see that Rizpah, hey honey, that's a cool R name to put down for our daughter. Write that down. Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured down, poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizbah, the daughter of Aah, the concubine of, of Saul, had done. So this was a long period. Now remember, we just read in Deuteronomy that if a person was hung uh, for his crime of murder, the, the night wasn't supposed to come before he had been taken off of the tree or whatever it was that he had been hung on. And yet here the Gibeonites left this guy out there from May or left these guys out there from May when the rains first started to October. These guys had been left out there hanging. And this mom who you know, loves her sons and nephews wants to preserve some decency you know, and covers them with sackcloth and keeps the beasts away. No doubt the, the stench of these months bringing in wild animals and vultures and the sun and she just really trying to protect. And so when David heard what Rizpah was doing, David took the bones of Saul um, and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who'd stolen them from the street of Beth Shemesh, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. And so we have a slide here for you. Um, Pretend that you're in Israel right now, but we've got um, Beth Shan, which is where uh, Saul and Jonathan were taken after they were um, killed. And so it's the top left picture and the bottom right picture. Now, on the top left picture, there's kind of a hill in the middle, upper middle, and that's this hill that's shown a little bit closer up on the bottom right. And up there, there, there used to be a wall, and that's where they pinned uh, Jonathan and Saul to the wall after he'd been killed on Mount, after they'd been killed on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines and the Philistines chopped uh, Saul's head off, I think even Jonathan's head off too, and brought them back to Beth Shan and hung him, pinned them to the wall. And then some heroes of Beth Shemesh, um, excuse me, Jabesh, there's so many, Shemesh, Gabesh, and Jabesh Gilead snuck in in the night, went through the camp of the Philistines, grabbed Jonathan and Saul off the wall and brought them and buried them there at Jabesh Gilead. So sometimes it's fun for me. I'm a very visual person to just see where it was. And 
who knows, maybe someday we'll get to go to Israel together and stand there and, and be in that place. But so some heroes went, got those bones and, and went and, uh, or the bodies and went and buried them under a Tamaresque tree at Jabesh Gilead. And then, so he got those bones, verse 13, he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who'd been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. So he finally, David finally takes Saul and Jonathan's bones, take it, bury them in Kish, which is Saul's dad's tomb. And, um, and then also took the, the body, the bones of these who'd been hung there. And um, so they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer of the land. And so you might just underline with your pen now that after all of this has happened, after the Gibeonites take these seven guys, hang them, uh, kind of an atonement has been made for what Saul had done to the Gibeonites, uh, finally, after the, these guys had been buried and Saul and Jonathan's bones had been moved and they'd all been buried in Kish's tomb, uh, after all of this, just underline at the end of verse 14, God heeded the prayer for the land. And so just so interesting that sin had been hindering the people's prayers. You know, not only does sin affect those of us around us and does it quench the Holy Spirit, but it can, it can uh, hinder our prayers. And are you in a place today where you, you know, you've, oh, I've been praying every day. I pray 10 times a day, you know. You know, I have some, some people close to me that, you know, oh, I pray every day. And I'm like, dude, you've got some major sin in your life that I think is probably hindering the Lord from answering those prayers. Why won't God answer my prayers? Well, man, search your heart. Search your heart for one thing. Maybe that's one thing that's hindering the Lord. It certainly was hindering uh, the Lord from pouring rain down on the land and stopping the famine uh, for the Israelites. Flip to Isaiah 59 verse 1, if you will. Isaiah 59 verse 1. This is one that you guys may have memorized. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. You know, are you here tonight and you're praying and you're just not hearing anything from the Lord and you're wondering why aren't you hearing anything and why isn't he answering? And, and maybe the question is, well, maybe the Lord just can't hear me or maybe it's, you know, the desert heat is like causing some radio wave frequency between me and heaven, you know, whatever, whatever you might be thinking. Well, the answer Isaiah tells us is no, the Lord's hand isn't shortened. He can still save. His ear hasn't grown old. He doesn't need a hearing aid. He can hear but your iniquities, your sin has made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So man, are, are you going through a season where you feel like your prayers just aren't being heard? You feel like the heavens are made out of brass today and every time you pray, your prayers are just bouncing back at you. I'm not saying that, yes, certainly there is sin in your life and that's what's hindering prayers or healing or whatnot. But I do say, search your heart. You know, do what David says and say, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked ways in me. Are there any wicked ways, Lord, that sins that I'm doing that are hindering you from moving radically in my life or my family's life or in my church's life or in my town's life or the people I love or this nation's life? Are there any wicked ways in me? 
So that's one thing that could be hindering uh, your prayers. Another thing that could be hindering your prayers, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 23 is, well, he says, if you go to worship and you bring a gift to the altar, and as you're there worshiping, you remember that your friend has something against you or your brother has something against you. Then Jesus says to leave your gift at the altar and go to the friend that you know has something against you. You've wronged them in some way and go to them and say, you know what, please forgive me. Please forgive me, man. If, if I'm hindering you from worship because of what I've done, please forgive me. I want to keep short accounts with you. And Romans says, as much as possible with you, be at peace with all men. And if there's something I've done that is causing peace not to be between me and you, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I failed you. I said those things, whatever. Please forgive me. Let's go worship together. And so it says, man, if you know that someone has a, uh, something against you, it doesn't say if you have something against your brother, you know, leave your gift at the altar and go tell him what it is. You know, I've had that happen before. A guy come pull me out of the pew and I just want you to know I've hated you for seven years, you know, type of a, type of a thing. And I just, oh, I had to get that off my chest and boy, I feel better. Let's go worship. And I'm like, wow, I sure am glad that you feel better. You know, I'm just going to stay back here in the foyer for a little bit. And, you know, but um, so perhaps, you know, there's something hindering. Oh, I just can't worship tonight. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that. You know, you've sinned against somebody and you need to go ask for forgiveness. But then um, 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us, verse 7, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. And so, man, if a husband is, number one, not dwelling with his wife, Number two, not dwelling with his wife with understanding. Number three, not giving preference to the wife as to the weaker vessel or honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, then prayers are hindered. When a husband is dealing treacherously with his wife or not being a Christ-like um, example to his wife, prayers are hindered. And so as we see prayers hindered here in 2 Samuel 21 because of sin uh, that was that was long overdue to be paid for, um, there's other things that can hinder our prayers too. You know, we're told that, you know, you pray, but you do not have because you ask amiss that you can spend it on your own pleasures. And so, man, if, make sure you're just not praying for that Ferrari that you've wanted for so long, you know, or that, that chopper, Orange County chopper, so you can cruise through Prineville and just have everyone look at you. You know, why haven't I gotten that chopper yet? You know, um, well, it could be because you're wanting to spend it on your own pleasures, but um, whole nother type of sin being, or excuse me, prayer not being answered. Then uh, we get into, this should be pretty quick, and it's actually a fun little part to read. Um, verse 15, when the Philistines were at war, Again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. So war with Philistia was, it was an, something that happened quite often. And, um, and so here David's fighting, and, and David grows tired in battle. Now, for one thing, he could be just getting old, and the battle is, uh, is you know, he's just, he's old. He's just running out of energy. But another thing is we know from when Absalom went to war with David, that David said, I'm going to go out and fight with you guys. Let's go fight. And the people said, no, David, don't go out and fight against Absalom because everybody out there wants to kill you. 
Everybody wants to kill you, David, and you're worth 10,000 of us. So you stay here inside the city and stay safe because everybody wants to kill you. So here David's out fighting. Dude, who do you think every one of those Philistines, you know, who are relatives of Goliath, who do you think they're after? You know, who do you think's got the target on his back? Okay, then. Um, David. And so he gets tired. You know, it's hard to fight a battle when everybody's battling against you. And, and so uh, he grows faint. Then Ishbi Banab. Ishbi Banab. I'm sure you'll remember that one. Who was one of the sons of the giant. The weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels. So here's the son of the the giant, Ishbi Benab. Can you remember that? I was watching a show uh, this week, and um, in the story, a lawyer's name was Bob Loblob. Okay? <laughs> so try to say that fast. He's a lawyer named Bob Loblob. Or blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so here we have Ishbi Benab. And. Um, his bronze spear, that thing had to shine real nice, was 300 shekels. And I was really trying to do the math on this. And I don't know, it was seven and a half pounds. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow, that guy was huge. No, I don't know. Maybe that's hard to throw a long distance. I don't know. But I was like, I must be doing the math wrong on the shekel conversion chart. So you guys might try that yourselves. Um, so seven and a half pound spear here. And he was wearing a new sword. And actually that word sword, it could mean thing. He was wearing a new thing. Okay, so it could be a sword. And so maybe he's like, I've got this sweet new Nike sword on, you know, and I'm just going to, if there's anything that can kill David now, it's this. Or it could be some sort of like bronze plate that he fastened to his forehead, you know, knowing where David liked to attack, you know. And so he was wearing a new thing and he thought he could kill David. You guys are... This is the high school pastor coming out of me, and it's just, it's going to go away, you know, it's just, it's sweating out of me. It'll be gone. Um, So he thought he could kill David, and I underlined that. Yeah, he thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So Abishai comes to the rescue. And um, Abishai, how many of you know who Abishai is now? You hear that name and you recognize it. One, two, seriously, we're in a church. Better not be lying to me. Um, Abishai uh, was the brother of Joab and the brother of, um, it's a really hard name and it's right here. Asael. <laughs> Asael. And uh, if you remember the story back at the beginning of 2 Samuel, Israel and Judah are sitting at the springs of Gibeah and uh, they start fighting with each other, doing kind of a little gladiator war thing, and it just erupted into a full on battle. And Abner of Israel fled. And so Joab and um, Abishai and, Ab- and um, Asael start running after Abner. And it says Asael was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle and just ran after Abner and ran so fast after Abner. And Abner kept running and said, turn away, turn away. No more people have to die today. And Asael just kept running after him. No, stop, turn away. And they'd run a little while and then Abner turns like, go away, go away. And the guy wouldn't turn away, poor Asael. 
And so Abner took a spear and threw it at Asael and threw the blunt end of it, went through his stomach and Asael died. Well, that was Abishai's brother and Joab's brother. And so they ended up getting revenge on Abner and killing Abner. And they're both mighty men of valor. But as we studied last week, Joab, you know, was a little bit bloodthirsty. Abishai is like, so here's Joab and his bloodthirstiness. And Abishai is like right here. I mean, Abishai is the guy that was with David back in 1 Samuel. And they, David and Abishai sneak into Saul's camp and Saul's sleeping there. And his spear is in the ground right by his pillow. And Abishai goes, David, surely the Lord's delivered Saul into our hands. Take the spear and kill him right now. David said, no, how shall I kill or raise my hand against God's anointed? And so Abishai, an awesome man of valor, we're going to see him in chapter 23 as one of David's mighty men of valor, always coming through. Here David's in a fight and this, and this son of Goliath is running across the battlefield and David's, you know, swinging his sword. And here comes this, well, I'm going to kill you, David. <laughs> and this mighty man, Abishai, jumps in, says, I don't think so. Then we have number, verse 18, giant number two. Well, let's just read what they say. Remember, they say, you shall go, uh, verse 17 at the end, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So it's kind of sad. It's like, David, it's time to retire, buddy. But notice they, they, he was so special. He was the lamp of Israel. He was such a special guy and they loved him and they didn't want him to die or all of Israel would be darkened. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. I tried to find that place on the map and I couldn't find it. Then Sebekai the Hushethite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. So giant number two, son number two of Goliath, his name was Saph. Then verse 19, again there was war at Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of Jeroragon, the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath. That could also be translated son of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So here's, you know, it could be the brother, um, the brother of Goliath. And uh, second or first Chronicles tells us this giant's name is Lammy, L-A-H-M-I. Kind of a cruel name for a giant to have. Boom, 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 boom. Hey, Lammy. Oh, kind of like being a boy named Sue, you know, you got a giant named Lammy, cute little Lammy gets slain by Elhanan. And then in verse 20, yet again, there was war at Gath. There was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Then the Holy Spirit helps us out with our adding 24 in number. I actually needed help with that getting my calculator out. And he also was born to the giant. So here's this guy with six toes on each foot and six fingers on each hand. Well, I had never seen a six-handed person before. I don't know if any, so I just had to show you guys because I know you were wondering, I was going to do this. But I guess one advantage is you'd just be able to really hold on to your sword if you were in battle with those six fingers. So we can get, before anyone throws up, let's get that off of there. Um, and then, um, so this six-fingered, I guess that would be 12-fingered 
12-toed giant um, tried to defy Israel, verse 21 says, and Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. So David's nephew, Jonathan, kills this 24-digited um, giant. <laughs> Let me see your digits. Um, so anyways, the crazy thing here is that when you look back at 1 Samuel 17, and don't you love the story, David goes to, to the battle where Saul is out there taunting Israel and you all know the story, so I'm not going to really get into it. But when David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the living God of Israel, just like this 24 digited guy does, it runs in the family or something to defy the God of Israel. And then remember, they tried to put Saul's armor on David and David took it off because it didn't fit and it was awkward and wasn't tried. And so then he goes out to the brook and he gets how many stones? Now he tells Saul, I am so good with the sling. You know, I've killed bear and lions and muskrats and man, I am good with a sling. So I don't think he was really planning on missing, but he goes out and he gets five stones. Now, isn't it interesting that there's Goliath, but then there's also his four other sons. It could be translated that they're sons, sons of this giant family. And, uh, and so it's just interesting to me that the faith that David had there was that he would kill all of these giants. And, you know, you probably were looking at the Philistines on the mountain and you've got Goliath out there. Come on out here and take me. And then you've got these like ogre guys behind him. Yeah, come on out. You know, his sons and his brother or whoever, you know. And David was like, I'll take you all right now. And then he goes out there on the battlefield. And after Goliath, you know, you send me a dog and here I am. I'm Goliath. And, and uh, David goes... Who do you think you are to defy the living God of Israel? I'm going to take you down right now. And in two seconds, your head is going to be holding, I'm going to be holding your head. In, sorry, PG-13 version. But what faith David had. And you know what's amazing as we're closing? What's incredible is David was a giant slayer and so were his men. David was a giant slayer and so were his men. And it's, it's a common theme in ministry is that you're never going to take the people farther than you yourself are, you know? David could have sat there and talked all that he wanted. Hey, you guys should go kill giants, you know? But no, he led by example. He went bravely out on the battlefield and he slayed Goliath when everyone else was terrified of Goliath. He did it. And so all of his men said, David can do it. He inspires me to do it as well. David was a mighty man of valor. And in two weeks, we're going to study a list of the mighty men of valor. He caused these men and encouraged these men to be mighty men of valor. And so my prayer is that maybe I would do that to you, but also that you would do that to the people that you're discipling and mentoring and raising up in the Lord, that you take huge steps of faith. You know, when we read Hebrews chapter 12, which is the hall of faith, and you read about Abraham who left his home and all of his inheritance and took his family and went to a land he knew not. I'll tell you, this last six months, it's inspired me to do the same. Or when you look at um, Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they're sitting outside the camp of the Philistines, and Jonathan gets a wild hair and goes, let's go take him, you and me, armor bearer, let's do it. The Lord can deliver whether by few or by many, and let's prove that he can do it by few. And the armor bearer goes, all right, let's do it. (laughs) You know, he inspired the armor bearer to do it. 
You know, Paul lived the life and showed us how to do it. And as he's on his way to Jerusalem, where everybody's prophesying that he is going to die for Jesus or be delivered to death for Jesus, he says, I don't care. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, but I press on towards the call. May the Lord help us this week to take giant leaps of faith for him, to be giant slayers and to be mighty men of valor and mighty women of valor. Don't be afraid. If he can use a little shepherd boy, he can use you guys. And so we'll close there tonight. I know that's a lot of ground to cover, but at least it's a fun passage, huh? It's fun stuff. So let's go ahead and and have Stuart come on up. And Man, I was just even thinking today about Ryan and how He's just leading by example, isn't he? We give glory to God. But I hope that you guys see what I see, that a man's willing to give up a comfortable life, you know, in a, a paid position in the midst of an economic downfall and to go with reckless abandon and to, to reach uh, Colorado for Jesus. And, you know, I'm certainly inspired to do the same thing and encouraged to do the same thing. And so he's definitely, by, praise the Lord, what the Lord's doing through him, he's leading by example. And so I hope you guys are encouraged to take huge leaps of faith for the Lord this week. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, log on to our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. You can also mail us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. If you'd like to contribute to this ministry, you may also do so through our website or by mail. Thank you for listening, and God bless.